I want to open tonight by referencing a very important conversation uh, that Grant and I have been having over the past few months. And that conversation is that medium is a sham, right? Medium as a size is a ploy by large and small to lighten their load and by marketers to make you pay more for an undefined product. And I mean undefined because medium is never the true medium of the two poles. It's like abstract. It's like, well, you want less than large, more than small? Okay, give me a decent amount of money and I'll figure it out. You see, not only is medium never authentic and never really medium, its very being is reliant on not one, but two other variables. If you have a small, a small, a medium, and a large, and you take away the large, you actually just took away the medium because now there's just small and large again. And so it has no state of being in and of himself. It's a sham. Medium, we don't know what medium is. And that's maybe why we're all so angsty today. Um, but I would like to propose another word that we're often disillusioned with. And Cam read it a couple times tonight in the text. And that word is supreme. When I was in junior high, um, I had this teacher that no one liked named Mr. Lear. And to mock him, we would call him Supreme Keith Lear. We'd give him this term of authority, but we would laugh because we would not treat him as any sort of authority inside of that. And even in politics today, we have people like Kim Jong-un, who is the supreme leader of North Korea. And for whatever reason, when we think about the word supreme in any sort of political context, farce democracies and incapable politicians have made it more of the punch of a joke when we call it, say, someone is the supreme leader of something. Even in the food industry, right? You can order a supreme taco. It's just a regular taco with guacamole or sour cream, right? That you pay more for what should already be on a taco. And so this word supreme, at worst, all it is is it's the butt of a joke, mocking someone's ability as a leader. Or at best, it's seen as something additional added on to what is already normal. You see, instead of being a word which communicates to us an unparalleled uniqueness or quality, it's become something synonymous with additional, not distinction. There's, supreme isn't something that stands out above the others. It's just others plus something. You see, Webster defines a supreme as something which is most excellent, the highest quality of greatness. And I think we often become numb and casual with words like supreme because there are so few things that are actually supreme by that standard of definition. So few things that are actually would say this is the most excellent, the highest level of excellence that you can find. And so what happens is, is we find things that are good and nice, things that are fun, and what we do is we pull down this definition of supreme to meet things in people, places, and experiences which are not the highest, greatest, or the most excellent. And so what Cam says is supreme, to me, might not be supreme. And that's the problem. We have a tendency to make trivial things supreme and to make supreme things trivial. And this is no more true than it is in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's who we're looking at in the book of Colossians. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul um, to a group of Christians um, I just realized I don't actually have Colossians marked in my Bible, so I'm going to do that real quick. And so it's, it's written to a group of Christians, so it's written to people just like you. I don't know who most of you are, but I'm assuming if you're coming here, you have a remote interest in who God is, and maybe even consider yourself a Christian. 
And so as we look at these things, Paul isn't writing these specifically for those who are not Christian. He's writing these things to you. We can't assume what Paul is talking about here. And he's writing to a church that's being sold side dishes as supreme dishes. The church is being pressed to make something other than Jesus, the center, the object of most excellent greatness, the most supreme thing. The culture around them is saying, you've missed out. This Jesus is not who you think he is. This is not the greatest. This is not most excellent. This is not what is supreme. And they're wrestling with this pressure from people who claim to be Christians and what they were taught by Paul in the gospel. You see, we too are prone to this problem. The unfortunate thing is the people in Colossae, they saw this other, um, this uh, LT and I were reading today, we see in Galatians, there are people with a false gospel. This false gospel was coming to them and it was like red flags. Like, hey, this is not normal that someone is saying that Jesus is not supreme. But unfortunately in our day, it is very normal for us to subtly place objects above Jesus as most supreme outside the church and even inside of the church. You see, the reason why we don't see Jesus as supreme is perhaps because we see him in the same way culture sees things which are supreme, as a potentially nice but just additional aspect to our life. Um, I was meeting with Garrett today, and we were meeting, and there was a guy talking to us on the phone. He talked for like an hour, and I just heard him saying, well, maybe you should try getting some religious guidance, like talk to a priest or something. It worked for me. Maybe it could work for you. Like you're standing at this buffet, this Taco Bell of life, and there are some people who go straight for the deluxe, and there's some people who the supreme is better for them. And maybe you could just get that supreme Jesus, and it will make your life better. So that's one group of people, people who don't understand the supremacy of Jesus. But I'm guessing for most of us in here, we have heard who Jesus is, and we would maybe answer the question, is Jesus supreme? And we would say yes, but our life, our thoughts, and our actions do not treat him as supreme. And see, whether you have no idea what supreme is, or if you agree that Jesus is supreme, the problem for each group is the same thing. You don't understand who Jesus is. And this is what Paul wants to help us see today in Colossians. Paul is going to show us why Jesus is worth so much in this world. Why is Jesus worth the giving of your time, your talents, and your treasures? Why is Jesus worth standing on in the face of opposition and saying, this is the hill I plant my flag on. This is the foundation on which I live my life. And he's going to do this not by empty platitudes of saying things like Jesus is all right with me or God is love, but he's going to say specifically who it is that Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And what we're going to see tonight is this, the supremacy of Jesus is the most essential truth in my life. And that's written for you. It's, it's the most essential truth in your life and in my life. The problem is, is do you believe that? Do you recognize that? And so Paul's gonna help us with that today. So let's pray uh, before we get rolling. Um, Lord, I thank you for uh, your goodness to us. I thank you that you have given us, uh, here in the book of Colossians, a peak with language. There's no more robust language 
to describe Jesus than the language that Paul is using. But Lord, language, though it's beautiful, is only effective because it's language that points us to the God who is beautiful, the God who is these things, that we're not reading literature and that it's the greatest we could put into words. We're reading your word, which is the greatest in words, which is representative of something even greater than what we could comprehend with our minds. So I pray you help us because we need your help. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Stephen, do you mind bumping me up a little on the soundboard? Um, so last week, Stephen opened with uh, an illustration on food. I just opened with an illustration on food. And as I was writing the sermon, I realized that most of my life has to do with food. In fact, many of the people I talked to tonight, I greeted you and I said, I'm so hungry. So that's my life in a nutshell, which explains what I'm about to say, and that's that my wife and I often get in arguments about food, um, about which food is best, uh, which is better, and, and her, her line, this is Sarah, I know Sarah, I've exhausted her argument when she just says this. She says, well, this food is just objectively better. Like, this is just the better food. And what she's playing off of when she uses that word objectively, what she's playing off of is that tension between what is objective and what is subjective, Right? Objective truths are truths which we see as universal. They're fixed. They're without objection. Where subjective truths, like what Stephen talked about last week with relativism, subjective truths are truths which are subjected to the preference of that person. Okay? Objective is outside of personal opinion. Subjective is with personal opinion. So Sarah will often say, this, which is a lie from the pit of hell, that sweet potatoes and sweet potato fries are objectively good. And I will say, I subjectively think they taste like sugar-flavored dirt. Like, that's what it tastes like. My experience changes what she claims to be true. How many of you actually like sweet potato fries? You're, what? <laughs> what is wrong with you people? Yeah, so is exercise. Anyway, uh, we can, uh, we'll... We'll deal with the epistemology of sweet potato fries later. Um, but in this, being objective means that you recognize things to be true regardless of your personal experience. Subjective relies on your personal experience. And what Paul is going to do tonight is he's going to speak to Jesus in an objective sense as to who he is with or without us and also in the subjective sense, which is how it is that we encounter him. But what he's going to adjust first is the objectivity part. And so the first point we're going to look at tonight is that Jesus is objectively supreme. Okay? Not up to personal interpretation, not up to your taste versus my taste, not sweet potato fry lovers versus people who have taste buds. It is that Jesus is objectively, ultimately, and through the qualities of observation, most excellent. And so let's see how Paul makes this case. How is it that we could say Jesus is objectively supreme? So Colossians 1 15 through 17. And so it starts with the word he. Um, in your Bible, maybe if you have a different translation, it says the son of God. It's actually just referring back to the verse Stephen left us with where it says the kingdom of his beloved son. And so this he here is referencing back to Jesus. And in this text, just for clarity's sake, we see um, Jesus is talked about a lot as he. And then we see God talked about. And in the Trinity, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in this text, he is typically... Jesus, God the Son, and God is the shorthand for just God the Father. So it's not that there is a God and there's Jesus. It's that Jesus is God the Son and God is God the Father in this text. And so he, that's Jesus, 
is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So why is it, well, look, why is it that Jesus is objectively, like even if he never encountered us, how is it that Jesus is most excellent? Paul actually gives three reasons here in which Jesus is universally and unequivocally excellent. And we're going to look at those really, really quickly. The first thing um, is that Jesus is positionally before all things. Jesus is positionally before all things. So what makes Jesus unique? In this text, Paul begins by stressing that he is the firstborn of creation. Now, this uh, word is difficult to translate. This phrase is because some people, like uh, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they take that firstborn of creation and they'd say, well, he's the firstborn of creation. Like he's created like us. Jesus was the first to be created. And we see that because it's firstborn of creation. But that word of, even as we use it, doesn't have a fixed meaning. You could be the ruler of something. You could be the ruler of a town, or you could be a ruler of the town and then speaking to the quality of it. Um, and it's different. So what it actually is being translated, what a better use of the word is here, is he's firstborn over creation, of being the reign of creation. He's not firstborn in that he's created first. He's firstborn in that he is positionally before creation. He pre-existed all of creation, and he is the one who is Lord over all of creation. And so if you have a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness friend, they say, well, how do you know that? And well, Paul explains it, because look at what he says. He says, for, so now he's beginning to tell us what he means by this. What does he mean by the firstborn of all creation? Then he says this, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So we're nearing Christmas. In two weeks when we get back, we're going to start our Christmas series called Condescending Love. We're going to look for two weeks at Christmas before you guys go to get Christmas series at your home churches. So you guys are going to be Christmased out by the end of January. Um, and what we're going to do and what you're going to hear is you're going to hear really important stories about how Jesus was born. God the Son, God who existed in eternal perfect divinity, was born as a man. He took on flesh, he became human, and yet while Jesus was a man, he was not a man like we are a man. He wasn't just a man. We're the sum of who I am. I am a man, and that is it. I am a human, and that is it. Jesus was a man who was also God. He was fully God, and he was fully man. And this is important because when we look back at stories like Genesis 1 that maybe you heard uh, growing up in the church or at vacation Bible school where you see God creating, here we actually get a look back at how it is that God created. God didn't create in a vacuum where God the Father was going rogue and uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit were off playing somewhere and God just created. Jesus was an active participant in the creation of the whole world. Jesus, according to this text, is the originator of all creation. God created everything that we see, everything that we are, everything that we experience through Jesus Christ. Even invisible things. I love how he includes this. Things like authority. 
What is authority? Point to authority. We can't. But Jesus created it. Jesus created the structure that we live in, the authority, the power, the ruler. There is not one thing we can encounter, not one circumstance, not one emotion, not one, uh, one invisible thing which affects our hearts that God didn't create through Jesus himself. And if Jesus created everything, then we should look at a question that the Bible itself asks. It says, is not the builder of the house worthy of more honor than the house itself. You see, if Jesus created everything, isn't he due more honor than everything? Isn't he due more praise, more affection, more glory? Because he's the one who created the things that captivate our hearts. You see, those of you know who come to Monday Night Football dinner, my son Owen, who's five, he loves Legos. And he will play Legos with you for eternity. And what typically happens is uh, for his birthday, we made him a Lego table. And so he'll be at his Lego table. He'll invite me in. Dad, you want to play Legos? Uh, and so we'll go and I'll be building something that I want to build. And then he'll just give me something that he built. And he's like, here, play with this. And so I'll take this doohickey that he made me and I'll start like everything automatically is a ship. That's how it works when you're a dad. Everything becomes a starship. And he gives that to me. And what typically happens is he says, Dad, that's not what it's for. That's not what it does. And as much as I would disagree with him, Owen's the guy who made it. Owen, in his mind, he schemed, he built, and he assigned this. And as silly as it is to, to attribute this to a five-year-old, it's only Owen who could tell me what that was built for because it was only Owen who built it. I didn't build it. I didn't have creative rights over it. I didn't commission it into existence. Owen did. And the same is true at a greater level with who Jesus is. If it's Jesus who created everything, then it's only Jesus who can define the purpose of everything. And we can disagree with it, but that doesn't change the fact that that's true. That that's the reason why it was created. So what's the purpose that God created things for? Look back at verse 16. For by him, so the means of everything being created was Jesus in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him or through him and for him. Jesus created all things through him and for him. Everything that Jesus made, he made for himself. This is the second point that makes Jesus positionally uh, objective or objectively beautiful, and that's that Jesus is by design the goal of all things, right? There are things where uh, life comes at us fast and we take what's coming, we roll with the ball and we try to grab this thing that's moving and we try to assign it a purpose. And like a moment, we try to take this fast paced thing and we're like, okay, I'm gonna take this and I'm gonna use this over here. I'm gonna harness this momentum, I'm gonna harness this difficulty, I'm gonna take this skill, and I'm going to now, in this moment, create a purpose for it. But what this text shows is that before anything was created, it was created through Jesus for Jesus. That means when we look around and we encounter all those things that we just saw Jesus created, things like the mountains and the trees and you and your friend, and 
the knowledge that we want to learn and the authority that comes over us, that means that there's not one verdict of authority, no experience of emotion, no serendipitous or coincidental casualty of your life, which is not designed to glorify Jesus. Everything was meant to find its goal in Jesus Christ. Everything was created so it would serve and benefit the one who created it. That means for you, the only right view of your life, the only right view of everything you encounter, everything you use, and everything you do in this life finds true meaning when its meaning is found in serving and glorifying Jesus. We can wrestle with things, we can use things out of place, and that's often why we get frustrated. Because we try to make things that we didn't create do things that we think it ought to do. When God the creator has showed us why and for what purpose it was created. So one thing which is really cool, John used this text a couple weeks ago in church, and he said one thing that apparently he picked up from another preacher, um, but here I want to, t- to tell you guys what we've just learned. In this verse where all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, that means that you now know something about everything. You could walk into the highest level trigonometry class, and you could sit there and be like, I don't know what it is, but I know what it's for. I know why this is here. It's here because we're examining the structure of this universe. We're, I don't even know what trigonometry looks like. We're looking at trigs, and these things, they find their end in who Jesus is. God created this so that we could find it, see it, and glorify him. You know more about everything than anyone who is outside of Christ could ever know about one thing. So why is this the case? Why is it true that not only Jesus created everything, but Jesus created everything for him, and why does that make him objectively supreme? This is Paul's, or Paul's, Paul's final point, is that Jesus is, is, Jesus is by performance first in all things. Okay, Jesus created everything. Jesus created everything for himself. And now we see Jesus' performance makes him first in all things. Look at what Jesus accomplishes in this text. Colossians 1, 17 through 18. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that's, he's the first one to rise from the dead, that, that in everything, he might be preeminent. So if we say, well, this is, just, this is what I do when I'm looking at the Bible, I say, what's happening in this text? So when I look at this, I say, what is Jesus doing in this text? Well, I see he's doing three things, right? He is holding all things together. Not only did he create, not only did he purpose, but he sustained He controlled the beginning, he controlled the end, and he controls this immediate moment, and he is holding all things together. Whatever's happening in the deepest molecules of cells, do molecules have cells? I am in the wrong line of business to talk about this. Whatever's happening in spinny things I've seen in labs working inside your body is happening not because the laws of science exist, but because God is sustaining the laws of science which cause us to exist. Jesus in this, he is also the head of his church which Jesus created his church. He died so that he might draw the assembly, that's what the church means in Greek, the assembly to himself to be the head of the church means that he is the authority and also the source of life for the church. And then the last thing we see that he did is that he died and he rose again and now lives. He lives at the right hand of God. So looking at those three things, 
sustaining all things, creating out of nothing the church and rising from the dead so that he might live eternally. Who has done those things? We see governments that can hold together societies, but even looking at America, which most people would say is one of the strongest governments, strongest nations in our world, we see that there's a lot of stuff that's not being held onto very well in our culture today. And a lot of things that are being held onto that shouldn't be held onto. We hire pastors in our churches. I'm an elder at our church. I have a congregation that said this is a man who we entrust to lead us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's Jesus who runs the church. It's Jesus who is the head of the church. Who is it among men that you know who has died and rose again? No one has done any one of these things, but Jesus has done all three. And if you look at the text, so that he may be preeminent. And some texts say first in all things. Do you want to hear, so, so this, just to recap, what Paul is saying is that Jesus was objectively beautiful because he is the source of all things. He is the one from whom all creation came. And then he says, Jesus is objectively beautiful because he is the purpose of all things. Everything leads towards Jesus. And then he says that he came and he lived and he died and he rose so that he might be even more preeminent in some things. If those two things weren't enough, Jesus came, he who was already supreme, to become more supreme, to become more beautiful, to become more worthy of praise than he would have been if he just existed as those two already wonderful things, creator, sustainer, and goal statement. But then he came and he accomplished something to be made even more excellent. So why is Paul layering this experience of excellence in this text? It's because he's challenging you. He's challenging you to think of something more supreme. Who or what have you encountered or do you hope in that is better than all of those things? Take away, so maybe you say, I don't, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out this Christianity thing. I'm not sure if it's true. Okay, let's just play this hypothetical game and let's compare what your other hopes offer to even just what the hypothetical reality of the gospel is, which this isn't a hypothetical, this is true. Who created everything? Who claims to be Lord of everything? Who claims to sustain everything? everything? Who claims to have defeated death, which ultimately destroys everything? Who is it who could be more essential to our life than who Paul just described? You see, we cannot see who this Jesus is and choose to see something else as supreme because it's so different. It's so unique. It's so wholly other than who we are. And yet we do. Maybe some of us in here are saying, I hear the words, I know the words you're saying that are coming out of your mouth. It's not doing it for me. When I first sat down to read this text, this is like such a picturesque text in the Bible. 
I'm like, I've heard this before. I was unmoved by it. So how is it that we can look at something which objectively, again, without personal emotion, we, no one claims to have done what Jesus did. No one claims to be who Jesus is. No one has accomplished what Jesus has accomplished. He is objectively supreme. And yet our experience of him is not worth who he already is. See, we have an objective savior, but we have a subjective problem we wrestle to experience the reality of who Jesus really is. People don't see Jesus as glorious. Even those who are inside of the church, we wrestle to treasure him enough. Why? How can he be so objectively superior and yet subjectively ignored? Do you guys know that the organ Think of the old, big church pipe organ. It was actually designed to fill in the octave gaps between the human voice. It was intentionally created and thought through to be the supreme supplement to the human voice in music. That's what it was built for. That's what they designed it for. That was the intention of it. And yet, so few of our churches and so few of our albums that we listen to include the organ. Why? because some of us don't like the way organs sound, <laughs> right? There was this thing which was created to fit a purpose, but through faults perhaps of its own, but definitely through the variance of the audience, it's no longer treated as it should have been. But Jesus is not an organ. Jesus is not something which was created to be preeminent or supreme, but failed to live up to the expectation of what was built on it. Jesus was and is supreme. Before creation occurred, he was already supremely different than who we were. So if the problem isn't with Jesus, the problem is with us. You see, we can't see the supremacy or the beauty of Jesus because our sin has blinded us. We see this every day. Non-Christian or Christian alike. We go out and we live in Montana. I was running last night, which was rare in and of itself, and I took a picture. I, I stopped. I stopped only because I was going to take a picture. Never do I ever stop when I'm running. Um, and I took a picture of the sunset. It was just this beautiful. I'm, I've lived in Montana for 25 years, and this made me stop and take a picture of it. And I didn't like stop and fall on my knees and worship. I didn't say, man, somebody made that. We can hear the most beautiful orchestra, the most well-produced song we've ever heard. And we encounter its beauty and we hear it in our hearts. We can feel the love of our parents or maybe the warmth of a relationship of our friends or our boyfriends or our girlfriends and we can look to that as supreme. Man, that's what it's about. That sunset, that date night, that album, that's most excellent. But we do so without considering and honoring the Jesus who created and commissioned all of those for his glory. 
You see, Paul describes this problem. How did we get here? How did we get blind? How did we get numb? How did we get deaf? How did we get calloused towards this objective beauty of God? And he tells us this in Romans 8, or 1, 18 through 25. So it's a long text, so I'm going to read it slow and really try to digest what it is that Paul is saying. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, right? God, there's that objectivity. It is plain. It is without personal experience. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That's what we just looked at, through and for Jesus. So they, meaning you, meaning me, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man birds, animals, and creeping things. You see, God is objectively the most beautiful, the most magnificent, the most, I don't know if this is a word, splendiferous, is that a word? It is now, I like it. Object in all of the world. Think of the thing that gives you the most warm fuzzies, that makes you feel the most safe, that gives you the greatest sense of hope, and God is greater. And to not see God as such, Paul says, is to take this truth and exchange it for a lie. It's to take right wisdom and become a fool. And this is not a mistake that we laugh at. This is the very sin that is the root of all sin. Our greatest sin is not that we sin externally. Our greatest sin is that we sin internally by not seeing God as godly, by not seeing God as beautiful. And what Paul just said is that is why the wrath of God has come against us. It's because we do not treat God as God. You see, it is because Jesus is beautiful that we have a problem because we don't respond to him with the glory to his beauty. And yet, what Paul is saying here is that because Jesus is beautiful, God set forth a plan in him to overcome what sin had mounted. This is the second point tonight. We saw Jesus is objectively supreme, and now we're gonna see that Jesus is effectively supreme. Let's look at Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in him, that's in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And God, through him, to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So this passage, um, the ESV actually 
moves the emphasis, but most of the translations, if you don't have an ESV, it says uh, the, the main actor is God. God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, and in Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself by making peace by the blood of Jesus. You see, Jesus was, if you look back at verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. No one has seen God until Jesus came. When Jesus came, God was in the flesh. God was there. We could look at him. John opens his gospel saying that which we have, or his epistle, that which we have looked at, that which we have touched, that is what we proclaim to you. The reality of God in the flesh we're telling you about. He was not just a man. He was the most beautiful, most supreme man because he was fully perfect and he was fully divine. So much so that the fullness of God, you think of the greatest characteristics that God could have, was pleased to say, yes, that is where I am. That is who I am. There is no corruption. There is no evil. There is no wickedness. There is only perfection. He was sinless. He was obedient. He was magnificent. He was caring. He was loving. He was faithful. And he always at all times saw God as the object of greatest glory. He was the perfection that none of us could attain. He was the eyes to see the glory of God that none of us ever had. And that Jesus, seeing God as glorious, chose to go to the cross for men who could never see God's glory. You see, our sin separated us from God. And that separation produced the blindness that we have. Our sin severed a relationship and calloused our eyes so that we could not see the goodness of God. That's what Paul discussed in Romans 1. But when Jesus came, he came to reconcile us by dying so that our eyes would be opened. On the cross, Jesus was going to come overcome the distance of being separated and the disease of being blind. And that is an important thing to know. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is the story we get in John 9 where Jesus heals this blind man. There's this blind man who's blind from birth and the Pharisees come to Jesus and they said, who sinned that this man is born blind? Him or his parents? Basically saying, he had to have sinned if he's blind, right? Because if we don't sin, then we're just gonna be healthy and we're gonna have happiness and people are gonna give nice things to us. But Jesus says, this man was born blind so that I might glorify myself in him. And so what Jesus does is Jesus heals the man's eyes and then Jesus leaves the scene for a little bit. And so these Pharisees, they come to this blind guy and they start like inquiring of him like he's a murder suspect. Like, hey, what happened? He healed you. Well, I mean, how blind were you? Like super blind? Like kind of blind? Like blind from birth or something happened to you blind? Like need glasses blind or like blind blind? And then they're like, okay, well, well what, what, what happened? What happened? Okay, well, who was it? Who was it who did this? He says, I don't know who it was. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. And they ask the same question, like, who, who is it? And then he has this amazing response. He says, why, do you want to worship him too? And then they ask again, like, well, who is this guy who claims to have done this? And I love the man's response in John 9, verses 30 through 33. Look at what he says. This is him being exacerbated. Like, I, this, what do you want me to say? And this is what he says. Why is this an amazing thing? You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. 
If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. See, this man knew that only God could do this because never before had sight been given to a blind man. You see, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament's that bigger part of your Bible that is uh, the story of God's relationship with his people before Jesus came. And we see lots of cool miracles there. We see prophets raising back to life the daughter of widows. We see um, bread coming from the ground and fire raining from the sky. We see giants slain by stones and seas separated by staffs. But nowhere in the Old Testament do you ever see a blind person given back their sight. In the midst of all of these amazing manifestations of God's power, not once was a blind person given eyes to see. You see, the objective truth of who Jesus is is met by the subjective problem that we don't see him as beautiful. We read this and we still prefer something else. We see these words, we understand them, and we still say, I think this is better. We wrestle with this reality, but Jesus came to fix our preference for sin. What Jesus did for this blind man in John 9 was a spiritual metaphor of what he came to do for all men on the cross. You see, when it comes to being restored to God, we need Jesus to die for our sins. His offering for sin was effective to cover our punishment. It was effective to reconcile us back to God. Jesus' unique death and resurrection is the only thing we need to see to be saved. If you want to be saved, you have to see that Jesus died for your sin. The problem is no one can see that. Our hearts are dead to that. Our eyes are blind to that. Our ears are mute to that. But the beauty of the cross, of what Paul is talking about here, is that the very thing you need to see is also the very thing which opens your eyes. When Jesus died on the cross, so too did the power of unbelief on people. When Jesus died on the cross, he died so that the scales that are over our eyes that keep us from seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ, they fell to the floor so that we can, for the first time, begin to respond rightly to who Jesus is. See, we can see Jesus is good. We can see Jesus is great. We can even say we see Jesus is beautiful. We can sing about Jesus, talk about Jesus, and tweet about Jesus. But unless Jesus is supreme in your life, you will never see him as beautiful. And what an oppressive burden it is for someone to try to get you excited about something which you do not see as supreme. What entrapment. What slavery. But by the grace of God, he shows himself as truly beautiful. You see, oftentimes we, we treat Jesus kind of like this, this two-legged stool where it needs something else. Like, Jesus is great, that's good. I get that he died for me, right? But, uh, you know, I, I still, I'm more grateful that he's let me be seen as cool by my peers, It's cool um, that Jesus is great, but what's more effective is that I can be accepted by culture or that my faith can be seen as academically robust to hold up to criticism. That's good. Jesus saved me, but it was really just a product of me being raised in a Christian family or having a background in the church. 
but Jesus is the only effective and essential object of your faith. He is not a stool which needs additional support. He is the throne on which God himself is pleased to sit. He and he in and of himself is the only way you can be brought back from blindness and into sight. He is the Jesus who died for our sins so that unbelief would be destroyed and we can see with new eyes the wonder and radiance of who God is. And so if you do not see Jesus as supreme, or if you're a believer who wrestles with the requirement of seeing Jesus as supreme, I want to offer you the hope of a beautiful and supreme Jesus. Because everything that stands in your way of seeing him as magnificent was overcome on the cross. And so here's the first thing. You need to ask God for that. I can't open your eyes. Bowen can't open your eyes. Rachel can't open your eyes. I can tell you about the one who can. I can show it to you. I can proclaim it to you. But God has to open your eyes. And if you pray that prayer, that is a dangerous prayer. Man, things in your life will change if Jesus becomes more beautiful than everything else. It it will take you places you never thought you were going to go. It was going to demand of you things you wish no one would ever demand of you. But all the while, it will be the most joy-producing act of worship you will ever have. See, I remember growing up, we had this telescope, this big white one we got at Costco, and it had like a little spout with the lens coming off of it. And I remember I was too short to see out of it clearly. Um, I don't know if you guys have used those before, but like unless your eye is lined up perfectly, you just see this little pinhole that kind of moves around. And so if I tried to look at the moon or a planet, um, I would like have to try to dodge my head around forever to see what was in there clearly. And despite the frustration it was to try to line up my eye perfectly with that, I knew that without that lens, I would never be able to see what I wanted to see. I'd never be able to see the moon or the planet. And Paul in this text is making the same point with Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And if we want to see that God as beautiful, we have to press our eye up to the whole of the cross. We must strain our eyes and attempt to align our vision with what already is big and beautiful because our sin prevents us from seeing God as glorious in any other way. The only way you're reconciled to beauty, the only way you're restored from death is through Jesus's blood on the cross. That is the way God designed it. That is the way God purposed it. And that is the good news of God that he gives that to us. And so we ought to stop trying to see the beauty of God in things which is not God's good news, which is so easy. We say, if I only have that right worship song and the lights are just right and like this ambiance is perfect, then I'll see the beauty of God. If God would just deliver me from this struggle, then I'll see God as beautiful. If God would just bring me that girlfriend or that spouse that I wanted, then he will be magnificent. But no, you will never see God as beautiful unless you see God through the cross which saved you, unless you see what Jesus did to overcome your sin and bring you not back into neutrality, but into the most satisfying relationship with himself. To see God beautiful, you must see what Jesus did on the cross. And there is great hope for no one is trapped in sin if we serve a ruling, risen Savior. For look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18. But when one turns 
to the Lord. The veil covering our eyes is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. How many of you have ever felt trapped by the demands of worship that you hear? You hear someone talk about this beautiful experience they have with Jesus, and you're like, man, I don't have that. Am I missing out on something? Am I, like, like that's, what the Corinth, that's what the Colossian church is wrestling with. These other people are like, we gotta figure it out. And they're like, did I miss it? Am I on the outside of this? And that's slavery. But where the true gospel is, there is freedom. Why? Because we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image that is the image of God, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. It is only Jesus who will lift the burden that is on your heart. For it is only Jesus who is the Lord's plan of salvation for a world dissatisfied with everything else. You see, the idea, idea of supremacy may be white noise to our culture, but for the believer, it's the cross which brings the shades of color and the shape to what is ultimate in our life. And he has become ultimate so that he might save you and be more ultimate. You see, Jesus is not a supplement to what is He's a symbol of what was and what will be for all those who are saved. The one who has risen from the dead to beat death and be brought to God. The firstborn over all creation. The firstborn of the dead. He is supreme in salvation, preeminent in position, effective in everything. Lord of all. And if you have that Christ, you lack nothing. So our prayer is ask God for that. Ask God to give you that vision. Ask Jesus to be that supreme object of your affection. For we have no hope outside of Christ on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, it would be a really cruel thing for you to say, see Jesus and be saved if we were blind with no hope. To say to a blind man, see, is the worst thing that could ever happen if you didn't also make it possible for blind men to see. And the only way we could do that is because Jesus died for our sins. Jesus took those who were dead and hostile and blind and cut off and separated and he reconciled, not by a word, not by his morality, but by his perfect life and unjust death so that we might be brought back because our punishment was paid. We earned death and Jesus stood in our place. And so now through faith, we try to see Jesus as beautiful and it takes time as we press our eyes to the cross and we examine throughout the years the different aspects of who you are and the beauty of it. But I pray that you give us discernment, you give us devotion and dedication so that we might for the rest of our lives spend our time standing and staring at the cross so that we can see the God who is behind it and we could be satisfied and we could be made confident and we can be freed from the slavery and disappointment that comes from every other area of our life. So Lord, open our eyes. 
What I do know is I was blind, but now I see. And if he were not God, he could do nothing. Amen.